This week on the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about West Virginia statehood. West Virginia University professor William Gorby describes the formation of West Virginia, its entry into the Union, and the effect it had during the Civil War. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Um, we are obviously at that point in the semester when we're looking at West Virginia statehood, the creation of the state that we're currently in. Uh, we can finally, after this point, stop talking about Western Virginia and Eastern Virginia. Uh, we've, we've been sort of looking at in the last week or so, looking at sort of the divides between Eastern Virginia and Western Virginia. Uh, we've talked about some of the political differences, the, the, uh, the grievances that Westerners have about the lack of funding for internal improvements, roads and highways. We've obviously talked about the very complex role of slavery in the region as well. Uh, and we left off last time looking at the Virginia Secession Convention when uh, delegates decided to pull Virginia out of the Union uh, in April of 1861. Now, shortly thereafter that, um, delegates go back to their home counties. That's, we, we sort of talked about this last time, and they're trying to get support for a statewide referendum on secession. So even though the Richmond Secession Convention has voted take Virginia out of the Union, uh, the vote gets to go to the people in late May of 1861. And so delegates go back to their home counties, um, and one of the first things that starts to gain traction is to hold a meeting up in the northern panhandle of West Virginia in Wheeling. Um, At what's known as the first of several Wheeling conventions, this is the meetings that will create the current state we are residing. Um, At that first meeting, one of the key figures that we've talked about, John Carlisle from Harrison County, uh, who was a leader of this sort of statewide push, uh, noted pretty dramatically early on, let us act, let us repudiate these monstrous usurpations, let us show our loyalty to Virginia and the Union, and let us maintain ourselves in the Union at every hazard. It is useless to cry peace when there is no peace, and for For I, for one, will repeat what was said by one of Virginia's noblest sons and great statesmen, give me liberty or give me death. So kind of suggesting that we want to stay loyal, we want to stay in the Union, these sort of themes we've been seeing uh, for many of the people here in the West. Uh, But remember Carlisle here a little bit later on. He's going to evolve a little bit, let's say. Um, As we had noted, the Virginia Secession Convention votes to secede. This is their third vote. They actually had voted a couple times to not secede from the Union. Uh, And of course, after Fort Sumter and Lincoln's firing, uh, Lincoln's order for troops, uh, several days later, the convention votes us uh, out of the Union. Now, as you can see, there's going to be about a month or so later a statewide vote on secession. Obviously, both armies are mobilizing during this period. uh, So there is a lot of action that's going to take place uh, during this particular time. Uh, and as you can see from this cartoon, uh, this is, uh, it says how Virginia was voted out of the Union. <laughs> yes, and if you said no in the East, well, you got a bayonet pointing at you there. Now, obviously, in the West, there is a large amount of support for staying in the Union, but there is a lot of debate over what to do next. Now, just a little bit of review, just to note that there are several key figures in this statehood movement. We're going to talk about mainly three of them today. The two early leaders, of course, are John Carlisle, seen here on the, on the right. Uh, he was a former congressman uh, from Harrison County. Uh, he was very vocal in his support of the Union, but also in his support of maintaining slavery. Uh, the man on the bottom left is known to us here. This is Waitman T. Willie from here in Morgantown. Uh, he was a noted figure in uh, state politics. He was a, what we would call a former Whig in Virginia. And in 1859, had been the candidate for lieutenant governor of the state of Virginia. Both men and others like them in the West consistently argued that the planter class in eastern Virginia was enslaving the non-slaveholding class of white residents in the West. And this, we talked, we've talked about how this rhetoric was amplified in newspapers, it was amplified in debates and conventions and other, in other areas. So this was a common refrain that you would hear uh, throughout this period, of course. Now, obviously, we've talked about what happened after the Virginia Secession Convention, but what starts happening next is delegates start 
going to Wheeling. And what you see up here in front of you right now is a list of the counties where uh, people decided to go to Wheeling. It might be a little small, but if you're looking at that sort of light gray shaded uh, counties, those are the counties sending delegates. Is there anything maybe that jumps out at you as you look at the representation here? Yeah. Is there one county that's probably becoming West Virginia? Yeah, we have somebody coming from Frederick County, Virginia. If anybody's from Frederick County, you might, hmm, interesting. Anyone else? Yes. It's kind of split in half from like north to south of who attended. Yeah, you can see a natural split, maybe south to north, maybe even also east to west to a certain extent. Anyone else? If you remember that vote on secession, does it kind of match up well to what you remember from that? Somewhat, a little bit, fairly close. Um, but we can see there's a large number of counties that become West Virginia that don't send anyone. So how did they end up being in this new state? We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Now, here's where it's going to start to get a little tricky. So feel free to ask questions at any time if something doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Um, about a week or so before the statewide vote, delegates meet in Wheeling. It's often a misconception that they meet in the, what's now known as Independence Hall. They actually meet in this building called Washington Hall uh, in downtown Wheeling. They meet over just a few days. And as you can tell from that map, only 27 counties are represented. West Virginia's 55 counties, so it's roughly half. Many counties in the southern and eastern part of the state send no one. At this convention, there are sort of two arguments that really come out. These are sort of broad-based arguments. One is a group of delegates that just immediately say, Virginia's secession convention acted illegally, and we need to, and John Carlisle's phrase, cut the knot now. We need to just break off from Virginia and create our own state. Carlisle's been the most vocal supporter of this idea. But there are problems. It's like anything in politics. If you suggest something rhetorically when there's no sort of nothing at stake, it's, it's easy to rally support. But now all of a sudden, we're, this is real. This is serious. And people start wondering, well, what is this actually going to look like? What's this process going to look like? And so as the convention goes on, Carlisle's early exuberance is sort of overshadowed by a more conservative approach led by uh, primarily Waitman T. Willie, who argues we really shouldn't try to get ahead of public opinion. We should wait and see what happens with the statewide referendum because that will actually take Virginia out of the union. And if we want to stay loyal to the country after that, that would be perfectly fine. But let's not try to put the cart before the horse, so to speak. So the convention says they're going to go back to their home counties. They're going to try to rally support that way. Um, and, and Willie also suggests this idea that if Virginia does secede, we should create some sort of government to sort of re- represent the union-loving people of Virginia. But it's kind of vague. It's a vague idea. So when that referendum happens, um, what's now the state of West Virginia? The vote is overwhelmingly against secession. But I would tell you to look at this vote, while it is a majority, there are 19,000 voters in what becomes West Virginia who want to secede. So it is a majority, but it's not as big of a majority, I think, as most people often think, Uh, particularly like in eighth grade West Virginia history class. Uh, Everybody wanted to form a loyal union state. Well, this sort of suggests that's that's not the case. Any questions so far? Um, what was the explicit reason for having the convention? I think to just kind of have an organized meeting where everybody could get on the same page about what are, we have different, there were different ideas happening out of these local county meetings that happened right after the convention in Richmond had ruled in April. And so basically they're saying, we want to actually have a strategy of what we want to do as a group. So we need to actually start creating a process. Are we going to try to create a new state? Are we going to do something else? They just want to sort of get themselves organized. It's a good point. Any, any other questions? Yeah. Uh, was the Maine, Virginia government aware of this meeting, and what were their thoughts about it? Uh, they were aware of it. They probably were not happy about it, and 
there was nothing they could do about it. That will be a problem we will see come up again. Again, this is, uh, this is what we looked at last time. If you, if, you look at, if you remember what we looked at before about delegates to the convention, it's roughly similar, although, as we noted last time, we have some interesting outlier counties like Kanawha County, where the large, massive salt industry and the salt works are. Uh, we have a few counties in the interior uh, that are not uh, supporting uh, staying in the Union. So, again, roughly half. But this would suggest the loyal state of Virginia at this point. So with this uh, vote in hand, delegates reconvene, and this time they meet at the Federal Customs House, located on 16th Street in downtown Wheeling. If you go there today, you will still see this building. This is now called West Virginia Independence Hall. Uh, This convention lasts a little bit longer. It's several weeks. It's known as the Second Wheeling Convention, and this is really the key convention in the state's creation in my book. This is where much of the organized structure of what's going to take place uh, is going to get off the ground. Now, we're going to be talking about the Civil War military side of this separately, but I should note, after the Virginia statewide referendum, the Union Army has entered western Virginia at Wheeling and at Parkersburg, and they are starting to move east, east along the Baltimore Ohio Railroad, the Staunton and Parkersburg Turnpike. Confederates are mobilizing near Grafton, in Barber County. Um, so there is a lot of concerns that uh, they want us, the Union Army wants to secure this region. The key figure who comes out of this convention and who is probably the key figure we're going to talk about moving forward is this gentleman, Francis Pierpont. If you go to Wheeling today, there is a statue to him on the corner of the street in front of Independence Hall. Pierpont was born in 1814 near Morgantown, he was a school teacher, and he became an attorney. He set up a lucrative law practice in Fairmont and was heavily involved in uh, legal issues with the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. He was a friend of Waitman T. Willie uh, and Carlisle. He actually went to college with another delegate to these conventions, a, a minister named Gordon Battelle, who we'll, we'll mention here in a, a bit as well. Pierpont was investing early in coal mining Uh, and in sort of the railroad industry, sort of the future of what West Virginia would become. But like Willie, he was a conservative. He was a little bit worried that people like Carlisle were wanting to go too quick. And after the first Wheeling Convention, he had been tasked to kind of figure up a strategy. And his, his wife famously said that he was in his study, he was kind of looking over the way this could possibly happen, and she reported at one point, he said, Eureka, I have found it. And what he had found was looking at the U.S. Constitution. Does anybody know how you create a new state from an existing state in the U.S. Constitution? Do we have any constitutionalists here? It's it's that part of civics class you never get to. Yeah. Do you need approval of the the previous state that was a part of the federal government and the new state? Right. You need the federal government's approval, and you need the approval of the state you're wanting to take territory from. So... We need the Virginia government in Richmond to approve the creation of West Virginia. Is that ever going to happen? And that's the part of the Wheeling Convention. People just, I can't figure out how that's going to work. And what they had latched onto was something Willie had talked about and others. Pierpont had sort of thought about it in terms of the legal approach. Basically, what we're going to do is the Virginia government in Richmond has left the United States. It is no longer under the U.S. Constitution. So the loyal American citizens in Virginia are allowed to reconstitute, reorganize the government of Virginia as part of this emerging civil war. They will, create, they will try to create a reorganized unionist government, and that government will manage Virginia's affairs, and it can give permission to the creation of West Virginia. Any obvious questions yet? We're still good. Okay. We'll see here in a minute if we're still okay. This, this works fairly well. Um, they, they basically agree to this. There are only a few, de- there are only 88 delegates at the second Wheeling Convention. Uh, it's a little bit smaller than the first one. Uh, they hold their meetings in the Customs House. 
And they're going to choose a number of key people. The chairman of the commission is actually going to be the first governor of West Virginia, Arthur Borman of Parkersburg. Uh, You might guess, who might be the person they're thinking of to be the governor of Virginia? Maybe him. But we don't want to give anything away too early. Throughout this whole period, and this will be something that comes up later, was, was this legal? Was this okay? And what you're looking at right now is a letter from Abraham Lincoln to the Honorable Francis Pierpont. This is March of 1862. This is one of my favorite letters from Lincoln. This is from Lincoln, because it might be a little hard to see. Make haste slowly. If you know anything about Lincoln, this sums up his political personality quite well. What? Make haste slowly. Go quickly with what you're doing, but don't miss any steps. That's maybe one way we could interpret this. Is there maybe any other way you could interpret this? We don't obviously have any context of what maybe he's referring to here. It's a little unclear. Yeah, Mac. Like, focus on what you're doing, but make sure you're doing it carefully. Like, when you're walking to class today, you got to get there, but it's icy, so you got to look down. Sure, right. Right, yeah, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, you got to go quickly, but you don't want to fall down and break a leg or anything. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the other obvious thing here, that Lincoln is writing a letter to Pierpont. Does he call him the governor? No. He doesn't not call, you know, it's very, it's very wishy-washy. He, he's writing to this guy, telling him what to do. Is he, he's not, I mean, you could say he's not the governor of Virginia, but this will be important. This issue of consent to this is going to be a very important part of this story. So we do have to get into some of the nitty-gritty steps that they take. And I, I showed that letter to kind of emphasize the, the way they go about this. They take a very conservative approach. And so early on in this meeting, we have 88 delegates. And one of the first things they do, John Carlisle, who is the chair of the Committee on Business, kind of a key committee at the convention, he presents what he calls a Declaration of the People of Virginia, declaring their rights as U.S. citizens and Virginians, and proposes this idea of reorganizing the government. The the irony in this statement is he actually says as well that secession itself is illegal. You might be sitting there wondering, but wait a minute, aren't we going to do the same thing? And the way it's described, you start hearing this, is what Virginia did in the Richmond government, they seceded from the United States. What we're going to do is we're going to eventually secede to be loyal to the Union. So it's a different thing, a totally different concept, supposedly. A few days later, the committee, the convention itself, passes an ordinance to create the reorganized government of Virginia. So this is the government of Virginia that will be centered in Wheeling. You might be asking yourself, are you saying there's two Virginia governments? Yes. There's one in Richmond that's in the Confederate States of America, and there's one in Wheeling, the restored government of Virginia. We're still good. (laughs) So with this, now that they've said that we're loyal to the United States, we're going to reorganize the government. The next day, June 20th, note the date, June 20th, 1861, they will choose officers for this reorganized government. And if you're wondering, the suspense is over. Governor Pierpont is named Governor of Virginia. Pierpont is the governor of Virginia from 1861, and I believe 1868 or 1869. Uh, If you ever go to the Virginia State Capitol, tell me if you see a bus to him amongst the governors there. Um, But he will be obviously selected as the governor, uh, and other key representatives of this new government will be chosen as time goes on. So I think we have to get into first looking at this restored government of Virginia and maybe seeing what do they do as a government. 
So it's fine to say you've reorganized the government, but are there any problems with this? Like just thinking, like, we're going to create a loyal government. Now what do we do? Yeah, Liam. Are they actually in charge of anything? <clears throat> they actually make any decisions in terms of, like, not just, like, are we going to be pro-union, but in terms of actually, like, can we governing their land now? Can we govern a territory like a government does of a state or the country or anywhere else? Yes, I heard. How is, the, like, Virginia reacting to this? Like, Eastern Virginia, are they, like, ready to go to war with West Virginia itself? Like, is, is there, you know, I doubt that they've taken this very lightly here. No. Seems like they'd be pretty uh, upset about that. Well, by the time the second Wheeling Convention is going on, we have active military operations in the region. The Union Army has very successfully moved across much of the northern half of what's now the state, which is an important factor um, in terms of, to Liam's point also, you know, actually being able to govern a certain territory. But no, they're not happy about this at all uh, in any stretch of the imagination. So they now have to have a third convention. The one takeaway today will be lots of conventions, lots of meetings. And this is a special session that Governor Pierpont calls of the Virginia General Assembly. Okay. All right. Now, why he's doing this is because the Virginia General Assembly has left the United States and joined the Confederacy. If we're going to have a government, we've got to reconstitute a state legislature. So they reconstitute it with eight state senators and 32 delegates. That's probably smaller than what the actual prior Virginia government's legislature was. True. And it represents not the same amount of territory. There are other problems, and and several of you have hinted at the the obvious problems. Governing territory. Um, How were these people chosen for office? Were they elected? Not really. You know, kind of re- they're kind of appointed by the convention. There's going to be a lot of discussion about that. Um, but because of what the Virginia government itself has done, there's not as much concern about what a loyal union government is doing. This is a non-chartered territory. So everybody's kind of operating in the blind, so to speak. Liam, to your point, there is not a lot of institutions, so they have to create a, re- a reconstitute a legislature. One of the biggest things is they actually need to get funding. They need to get more revenue. Do they have the taxing power? Well, not entirely yet. So they'll get donations from wealthy individuals. They'll get some money from the federal government. Interesting. Uh, one of my favorite incidents is they actually try to, they actually seize the Virginia State Bank in Weston. I usually joke, you know, think of it like ordering a bank robbery. I mean, that's not exactly what it is, but, you know, they, they need revenue to do things. Now, some of this is a little more serious. They actually need to deal with the fact that there's a lot of people who weren't loyal to the union. So they will force all county elected officials to sign a loyalty oath to Virginia, the restored government of Virginia, and the union. Anybody who's not willing to do that is removed from their position, put in jail. So there is a heavy amount of coercion that's going to happen. But again, this is a unique situation. The other thing they have to do, remember after Fort Sumter, Lincoln called for troops from all the states. Virginia hasn't sent troops. So one of the first things Governor Pierpont's government does is they raise several regiments of troops. It doesn't meet the entire Virginia quota, but it shows that they are a functioning government and that they're trying to meet their obligations to the federal government. Hmm, interesting. They create a new General Assembly, as we've mentioned, and they select representatives to the House of Representatives in Washington. obvious questions yet. I'm waiting for a constitutional person to ask, raise the evidence. So during the first like two, what, two years of the Civil War, there were Virginia representatives in the... In two Congress. different governments. Yeah. I mean, like in the federal government? Well... Like, did they send Congress? That's a good point. So what happens is whenever the secession crisis happens, Virginia leaves and other states leave, their representatives in Washington vacate their seats. 
So Virginia's slate of congressmen and senators, they go to the Confederate Congress, some of them. Some of them join the military. One of them's Albert Gallatin Jenkins that we mentioned briefly. He had been the congressman from Western Virginia. He forms a Confederate cavalry unit. You know, so these seats need to be filled, and they get filled. Do all of them get filled? Maybe, maybe not. And on July 13th, the convention chooses two representatives for the U.S. Senate from Virginia. John Carlisle and Waitman T. Willie. Not a surprise. The two leading figures for years for West Virginia statehood, or at least against the grievances against Virginia. So we have a reorganized state government. We have active military operations happening, but the Union, as we'll see next week, is being very successful. And there's moves to create a new state. Any questions so far? Yeah, Max. Is slavery discussed at all at these conventions or no? Not very much. And that gets to an interesting point that scholars have kind of not fully appreciated, more recent scholars have, that they do talk about slavery, but the reality is a lot of the delegates at the convention are either slaveholders or people who adopt this sort of moderate pro-slavery approach that we've been talking about. That's going to slowly change because people like Pierpont, he's a little more anti-slavery, let's say. And several of the other people that will get involved later will be uh, a little bit more so. Yes, Aaron. You talked about before just lack of funding. Um, where all these states seceded, and there was federal government floating around there, I understand they were raising you know, money and troops mm-hmm. for a war, but did not some of that get like reallocated to uh, West Virginia being a new state? Or I mean, they get, there was some federal, but I didn't it, know. They're getting a decent amount of federal support, which later becomes a legal question that if the federal government is giving the reorganized government federal money, are they recognizing it as the state government of Virginia? It could be. Make haste, slowly. Lincoln's words of wisdom. So they are getting things organized, and on August the 20th, the convention approves a dismemberment ordinance. It sounds scary. Dismembering, those of you in biology or any of the health sciences, dismemberment means what? Cutting off a limb, cutting off a part of something. That's literally what they're suggesting. We are going to cut off a part of Virginia to form a new state. So they've said, we're loyal to the union. We've created a new loyal government and reorganized it. And that government, the government of Virginia, to Noah's point earlier, is going to approve the creation of a separate state through this dismemberment ordinance. Everybody clear. And that new state is Kanawha. Wait, what? <laughs> what? John, this, is the, this comes out of those early meetings. This was the proposed state in that dismemberment ordinance known as Kanawha. Any obvious questions? <laughs> There's one obvious one. Where did Kanawha go? What's, what's also different maybe about this map? The shaded area is obviously the part of Kanawha uh, would be this new state. What's left out? Yeah. All of the Eastern Panhandle and the Greenbrier Valley. Yeah, a good portion of the Greenbrier Valley, like Mercer County, Summers County, Monroe County, much of the Eastern Panhandle. Anybody in here from the Eastern Panhandle? You would have been in Virginia. Anybody think maybe why these are the only counties they're including? Yes. I don't know where it was like 100 years prior if it has any relevance now, but that was where the Greenbrier Land Company and the Fairfax Land Company were. I don't know if there was any pull with that at all, with the, you know... I don't know if that still had any uh, relevance. Well, I, I think, the, no, the relevant point there is that they're part of old Virginia. Yeah. They're, they're, the, remember, we've talked about these, this regionalism within the state. Nobody ever really considered the eastern panhandle, what now the eastern panhandle is, hey, that's western Virginia. They thought of it as part of eastern Virginia. Greenbrier Valley, same thing. The other reality, too, is those are areas where there are active Confederate military operations. There's Confederate troops. They're actually stationed near the Greenbrier, near Lewisburg. If, and in front of you, you have a handout that is showing what this dismemberment ordinance did was the convention approved this, 
And like with the secession convention, they held a statewide referendum. And this referendum is held on October 24th. Any obvious questions as you look at this uh, map? And on the back side, you have the actual election returns. Remember, we had a decent turnout for the secession vote. Any thoughts, any maybe observations as you're taking a look over that? It's very interesting. Yeah, Adrian. Um, looking at uh, Calhoun uh, County, yeah. well, uh, it says they're not like participating because of like issues from the Civil War. Right. But they're like in the pocket of like everyone else that is participating. Sure, it's suggesting the type of warfare that's starting to happen. We'll call it guerrilla warfare. So there's certain interior counties where it's going to be difficult to hold some of these votes. What? What else? Yeah. There's a couple counties that uh, supported secession that now are supporting statehood as well. Okay, so they flipped. They flipped to a certain extent. Any minds? Yeah. Well, um, if if the statehood was based on like consent of Virginia, but quite a bit of this territory wasn't even voting, then why'd they say that that was theirs? <laughs> sure. There, that you can see there's some counties where it's saying at some point in the future there will be a vote on inclusion. They can't hold. Why wouldn't they hold this vote right now? Why wouldn't they want to hold it? They wouldn't want to hold the vote in Greenbrier County because they would say, no, we don't want to join the new state. We're part of Virginia. That's where the Confederate Army is. Yeah. I was just going to go off of uh, Hampshire and Hardy were both counties that participated in the referendum, and they were only to be added if the majority of voters were approved. Okay. That interesting that they were in both kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, you can see a set of counties on the border with Virginia and Eastern Panhandle where it's kind of like, in the future, maybe they'll get included. They're flirting with the idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any other observations? Yeah. Uh, the entire Wyoming County, like, form a military regiment and vote as that? I'm not exactly sure, but those are all, again, counties in the southern, deep southern part of the state where there is a lot of Confederate support. There's active operations. Most of the people who've joined to fight are fighting for the Confederacy, for sure. The other thing, look at the overall vote. Seven hundred or so people voting against the creation of the new state. You think that's accurate? Some of you shaking your heads no. Yes, I Why is there so many voters that just didn't vote? Mm, good question. Does anybody know how you voted back then? Now we have secret ballots. It's all very... You would go before a board of commissioners, and you'd be asked, how do you vote on this? How do you vote on the question of statehood? I vote yes in front of a group of people. So let's say, let's say Max, he decides he comes up to the meeting and he goes, I vote no. Excuse me, sir. Are you a secessionist? Are you aiding the Confederacy? What are you doing? Well, maybe anybody behind them is going to go, maybe I don't vote or maybe I don't engage in this. You know, I'm giving a simplistic description of what would happen, but there is a certain level of The reality is, in our system, we count the people who vote. If you don't vote, you're sort of giving your tacit consent, let's say. So the referendum, the voters approve the new state of Kanawha that will be made up of just 39 counties, so it's a little bit bigger than what we've seen up to this point. And just, uh, just, for, uh, just for our purposes of counting the tally, the statewide tally is 18,408 for the new state, 781 opposed. You should really highly question that vote count. But it's the votes we have. There will be a number of these statewide referendums. Every time they happen, the, the percentage of people participating gets less and less. But the other reality, to be fair, it is a time of war. 
So they're trying to do this and get, and get public input when there's all kinds of devastating uh, military action happening across the state and the region. So there will be a group of counties that will be added at some point in the future. But again, just to note, we had roughly a 37% voter turnout, which today if we got 37% for a referendum, we would love that. Uh, but at this time, this is a period of high levels of voter turnout, so this is very, very low. So there will be seven counties that could, would be added if a majority approves sometime later. They're mainly those counties that you saw in the eastern uh, and sort of, uh, sort of uh, mountainous counties like uh, Greenbrier. There are going to be some additional ones that will be added at some point as well uh, down the road as well, if you're trying to wonder how we're going to get to the number of counties So now we have to have another convention in Wheeling. This one is a constitutional convention. So now the voters have approved the creation of the new state of Kanawha. It's still Kanawha at this point. And they're going to meet. And this is really where they're going to, I think, get into some of the more nitty-gritty questions some of you have raised. They're going to meet in late 1861 into 1862 and really try to hash out some of these issues. This convention will meet for months. It will be smaller, about 56 delegates. And they will try to sort out a number of pressing issues that still exist. One thing the convention does is they will allow for the inclusion of the following counties if they vote to join West Virginia. Frederick, Jefferson, Berkeley, Morgan, Hampshire, Hardy, Pendleton, Pocahontas, Highland, Bath, and Allegheny if they choose to join. Some of them won't choose to join, obviously, and are still part of Virginia. So there are several issues they have to deal with. If you're looking at the screen, what you're looking at is a tally of votes about something early on the convention delegates just had a problem with, the name. They were like, eh, Kanawha, it's a little too regional in focus. There were a lot of names pitched. If you look there, you'll see Augusta, Allegheny, Western Virginia. We could be here in Morgantown, in Monongalia County, in the state of Kanawha. Just imagine that on your letterhead. Probably the best argument given was a simple one from Waitman T. Willie. The name Kanawha is a very hard name to spell. I think the rose would smell sweeter by some other name. If you know here in Mon County, our county is spelled one way, but the river is spelled a different way. Sort of So they, as you can see, the vote total, obviously, the most votes are for the state to be named West Virginia, to emphasize that West versus East dynamic. There is discussion as well about the boundary. As I mentioned, there are 39 counties. There will be initially, it's sort of debated that there will be five counties that can be included at some point in the future. And then, as I mentioned, they will also rule that there can be a large other set of counties that if they vote in the future, they can also join the new state. If you're wondering, there's a few counties that are created after the Civil War, Lincoln, Grant, and Mingo uh, in particular. This number will roughly get us to the, the current composition of the state that we have. Um, so there will be five additional ones, and then seven more they are going to be allowed to vote sometime in the future. And I think you all appreciate why that's going to happen in the future. Yeah, Lauren. So <clears throat> in regards to the stuff we learned earlier about mm-hmm. that one photo that or I keep thinking of the picture where it has East and West, East and West it has Planner versus Mountaineer. And we think about the previous conventions in Virginia, like the issues that kept arising. Right. Did that play a part in choosing West Virginia? Like, was that deliberate because of those, like, divides that had happened over the years? I think it, I think it is. I mean, even in the convention discussion about it, you kind of get a sense of, you know, there's this sense. We want to distinguish ourselves from over there. And if you pick Kanawha, it's also very regionally specific. Even Augusta is a little bit regionally specific. Remember we mentioned before they wanted, to, there was an earlier attempt to call it Vandalia, it's just those names have a there's certain distinctive quality to them. Whereas West Virginia always tells you, we left you. It's, it's a way of kind of like sticking a, 
sticking a knife in a little, a little, a little I mean, to be honest, that is kind of a, a little bit of what it is. So, the convention has ruled on a number of different uh, sort of pressing issues. And voters across what's the, uh, the region of the state approved the new constitution. I will note, and we'll get to this next week, Jefferson and Berkeley counties actually don't participate in that vote. That'll be a little bit of an issue after the war especially those of you from Jefferson and Berkeley County. And for anybody watching, Jefferson and Berkeley County are two of the biggest counties now in the state. So their inclusion has always garnered some interesting comments over the years, let's say. Greenbrier County will be included in this as well. But again, they haven't been really included up to this point. And by May, this issue is, is getting sort of largely resolved. <clears throat> and so, uh, by May, the state of Virginia and its legislature and its governor gives permission to the creation of West Virginia. So, Governor Pierpont has given his consent Remember that letter from Lincoln? It was like spring of 1862. Make haste slowly. Hmm. Hmm. Is, he, is he giving his permission? It's not clear. Any questions so far? If you're still wondering, the government in Richmond really hates this. But they can't do anything at this point. You have to sort of accept the fact that if secession from the Union is unconstitutional that this can all happen. That what Richmond did, what the the Secession Convention did, and then the state government did in Richmond, made any decision they had on what's going on out here sort of null and void. Now it's going to go to Congress. Now, the issue here, and I, I, I want to make sure we go through this carefully, there are still some sticking issues that have not yet been resolved to the point that it needs to be. And one of the major ones is slavery. Up to this point, West Virginia is going to be a slave state when it enters the Union. In the convention debates, there have been very few people that we would even suggest are abolitionists. The only one really is this gentleman here, Gordon Battelle from Ohio County. He's a minister. He has been one of the more vocal supporters that West Virginia should be a state that emancipates its slaves. Um, but the, 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 the general consensus of these conventions is that West Virginia is going to be a slave state like other border states. And when that, they start this process, slavery is not the, necessarily the only key issue. You know, it's many issues. But by 1862, the war is changing. Slavery and the ending of slavery is becoming more of a priority for Lincoln's government and the Union. And so there's a lot of debate. Delegates like Gordon Battelle want to immediately end slavery the moment the state is created. Let's let's get rid of it. Let's join this sort of emancipationist movement. The majority opinion is held by people like John Carlisle that, like everything else, it needs to be given to the voters of Western Virginia to decide. If they want to end slavery, then that's fine. Carlisle consistently also talks about, throughout many of these periods that we've talked about, the role slavery plays in America. You know, he's a, he's a defender of slavery in many, in, in many respects, for sure. Um, so, obviously, and, and as a slaveholder himself, you know, he has particular views on this that are different than others. And so, the idea basically kind of gets punted. And when the bill is introduced in Congress in the fall of 1862... Carlisle introduces a bill that shocks everybody. He includes counties in the Shenandoah Valley and in southwestern Virginia that nobody had ever really talked about other than just in small debate. He includes this massive new territory that had never really been approved. And, of course, he kind kind of is vague on this issue 
this issue of slavery, but in essence, it is not going to be a free state by any stretch of the imagination. Now, if you know anything about Congress at this time, because none of the southern states have representatives there, it is a supermajority Republican Congress, much more abolitionist. And so from the get-go, people like Charles Sumner, you know, Charles Sumner, the guy that got caned on the floor of the Senate, uh, he's a, he's, he is against the creation of this state if it is going to create and maintain slavery. And there's, there's a lot of debate about this. And Carlisle really doesn't want to budge, so Waitman T. Willie is going to have to step in and propose an amendment to the statehood bill. Willie's amendment is a compromise, and it will institute a system of gradual emancipation. So this is kind of meeting the situation sort of midway. So that when the state comes into effect, and and, and they think it's going to be July, it ends up being June eventually. Whenever the state comes into effect, any slave who is 21 years or older will be immediately freed in the new state of West Virginia freed immediately. If you're not 21, you remain a slave until you turn 21. Does everybody understand what that's going to mean? I mean, obviously, this is a moot point because of the 13th Amendment in slavery in the whole country. But basically, when West Virginia is going to be approved by Congress, and when it's being created, it will be created with slavery still maintained And if the 13th Amendment had not happened, if you were born right before the state went into effect, you could have theoretically been a slave well into the 1880s if we hadn't had the Emancipation Proclamation. Not the Emancipation Proclamation, because that was a war measure. If we hadn't had the 13th Amendment, obviously the 13th Amendment makes this whole issue null and void. But the state is admitted as a slave state. That is very, very important to remember. It's not admitted as a totally free state. Is there any questions about that? It's very important. I think it represents a lot of these, the sort of questions you've all had all semester about the role of slavery in Western Virginia, too. Yes, sir. Was Willie, was he a, like, was he a supporter of slavery himself? He had been, um, but I think he also realizes that this is a good compromise measure, too. He was kind of known as being a compromiser, sort of, let's give sort of all sides. I feel like the people that were... Uh, rather slave owners or very big supporters of slavery would have just, you know, at that time tried to um, gather slaves, buy slaves that were nine, ten years old to have like a workforce. I feel like that was just, I mean, I don't know if he was, he had a consortium that he was trying to please in that regard. Let's be honest. In in America, the value of slaves, the younger slaves are worth more too. Yeah. So this is a way to placate slave owners because you're, you're going to allow them to keep their youngest slaves their most valuable slaves. So, yeah, it is a reality. This new state also will be the boundary that we all know and love. And so the Senate is given the bill. There is still a lot of heavy opposition to it, but it passes. It passes by a margin of 23 to 17. So there is a vigorous debate about it. One of the no votes is John Carlisle from Virginia. I told you at the beginning, remember Carlisle. If you ever want to go into politics, this is how you end your political career. Everybody wonders what this is about. Historians have debated this for years. Yeah. The 23 to 17 vote, is that in the U.S. Congress? U.S. Senate, yeah. So the state of Virginia has given its permission. The, the Congress now has to give its permission. So they've given, the Senate's given its permission with Carlisle, the vocal leader of the statehood movement, saying, nah, I don't want want it. If I don't get it the way I want it, basically, too bad. Obviously, his view on slavery is important. His main gripe was the fact that Congress could intervene at this point to say that this new state had to be on the path of gradual emancipation. But it obviously means, uh, it, it passes the House of Representatives. There's a debate, but it's not as... Uh, strong once the Willie Amendment is added to it. 
And of course, it goes to President Lincoln. Lincoln's a strict follower of the Constitution, and like many things with his cabinet, he gives it to his cabinet to help him give them their opinion. He has six cabinet members. How do you think they give him feedback? Three say we support, and three say we don't. It's up to you, Mr. President. And Lincoln debates this for a while. He has to decide upon it by December 31st, 1862. Keep in mind, the two things on his desk are the Emancipation Proclamation and this bill about West Virginia. He's convinced about the first one. The second one, he actually, he really debates whether, is this setting a bad precedent? And he really debates it until the very, very, very end. Big spoiler alert. How does he, how do you think he rules? In a very short signing statement, it's very short and concise. Lincoln makes it very clear that West Virginia's creation is expedient to winning the Civil War. And as commander-in-chief, his job is to win this war and bring the country back together. He argues that without West Virginia, this could potentially lead to the other loss of the border states like Kentucky and Missouri and other places, which has been a key factor in this throughout. If they lose the border states, it makes it difficult for the Union to wage its military campaigns in the South. And he states pretty clearly, a precedent in times of war is not a precedent in times of peace. This will never happen again unless we have a civil war. It is is approved. It will have to go back to the state's voters to approve the change with the Willie Amendment that was made. That will be approved over... Overwhelmingly. And when that is approved, Lincoln issues a proclamation on April 20th, 1863, that 60 days would go into effect the creation of West Virginia. On June 20th, 1863, West Virginia enters as the 35th state with, I think, the best creation story of all of them, but I'm biased, so. So we, uh, we will wrap things up there, um, and we will look at the Civil War. And one question we're going to get into is the politics of how this factored into the Civil War, particularly the legality question, which is not brought up by Virginia, per se. It's actually brought up by Jefferson and Berkeley County, uh, which are, is now part of the new state. So thanks, everybody, and uh, thank you for your attention, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.